Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 2, Episode 7, and today we are going to be traveling back to 1954 and talking about the Japanese classic Godzilla. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz, and I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about you? I am doing well. It's uh, just going to be... I don't know, a couple weeks after this for the listener at this point, but we are off of our holiday break, so getting getting back into the yes, swing of things and, here. Yes, uh, and got work starting back up, so going back to school, but had a very nice, relaxing break. Watched a lot of movies, and I'm, but I'm excited to get back on back on the horse. Yeah, it was kind of nice to actually watch. Uh, we, we went to visit my in-laws, Mary's parents in Arizona, and it was nice to watch so many movies without having to take notes or worry like, what am I, am I going to be able to say something cogent about this or something that is not too terribly dumb? So that yes. was kind of fun. It's a, I always try to catch up on a bunch of movies during the winter break that I didn't get to see during the year. So I got to do that. And then there's this weird time period in the first couple of weeks of January where there's nothing new coming out in the year and... I just feel like I'm in a holding pattern, so I filled that one up by watching some really old classics this year. Yeah, you got sort of got inspired by going back to 1954. Yes, exactly, so I went back even farther. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Godzilla, mm-hmm. um, and I'm very excited. Monsters. Yeah, so what? what's your personal history with Godzilla films, and what expectations did you have coming Yeah, so I... I had never seen this Godzilla film, but I had seen, mm-hmm. there was the Godzilla film with Matthew Broderick that came out in, what was it, like 96, something like that. And then there was the Godzilla reboot that came out in 2014, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Yes, and so I had one. seen that one as well as... Oh, I think I also saw Godzilla King of the Monsters, which came out in 2019, and did not see Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, But I remember watching the the 1998 Godzilla film, and it was a big deal when we watched it. We went to the movie theater and watched it, and I remember one of the specific things is I had this toy, Godzilla. Toy maybe isn't the right Mm -hmm. word. Like, it was big, and... It was so like a stuffed animal, but it wasn't soft on the outside. Like it was stuffed, but it was hard on the outside. And I don't know how to explain it. And so I remember that and connect with that really well because I still have it. And my son has it at this point. And so I I remember that event. And afterwards, I've just been kind of been, you know, interested in Godzilla tangentially, but never really gone and dug deep into Godzilla. So that's my experience. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lot more than me. I had none. I had not seen a single Godzilla movie. I mean, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I have a bit of a chronological neuroses where it's difficult for me to enjoy something if I feel like I'm missing out on information, even if 
those things are like reboots or there isn't really a, supposed to be a connection to the films. And so it's never something that's held a lot of interest to me because I know that there's a lot of history there that I just don't have any knowledge of. So yeah, this was my first Godzilla movie and that's exactly how I would want to do it. Going back to the beginning and starting there, I think it's fun to see how these these things evolve. And I didn't really didn't really have any expectations, I guess. I knew that it was going to be in Japanese, and I think this is our first foreign language film, yes. right? Yes, though there was a lot of foreign language in uh, Crazy yeah. Rich Asians, so, yeah. Right, of course. So I knew that. I've seen some famous Godzilla GIFs that have just made their way around the internet, and I think I recognized one or two in this one, and other than that, I didn't have any expectations. Yeah, my my only expectations is... Well, I'd seen those other Godzilla films, but those didn't really have much effect on my viewing of this film because I knew they were reboots and remakes that I had the assumption that they had not stayed very true to the original films, which... Um, I don't know. It, it's 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 kind of accurate, but also... It was connected more with the original film than I thought it would. And then I also had this Mm. impression just of kaiju stories in general, like giant monster stories. And I know that Godzilla had like this, uh, has this place in culture that's, I thought it would be a little bit more childish. I didn't expect the first film to be like such a serious and thoughtful uh, and thought-provoking film, as it turned out to be. Uh, and so that surprised me, and I enjoyed that a lot. Right, I guess, yeah, I guess I agree. I guess I would have expected a little bit more right. of a camp factor. But I don't have, I think you have more experience probably watching Japanese films than I do. It wouldn't be hard to have <laughs> more experience <laughs> watching Japanese films than I do, because I think I have zero, so... Yeah, and I have a little bit more experience watching Japanese films. Uh, I've seen a few Kurosawa films, and then a handful of anime films, and then just a handful of modern Japanese cinema films. So a little bit more experience, but nothing like an exhaustive experience of, of Japanese cinema. So let's talk a little bit about the time period when this movie was released. So this was released... Over in Japan in 1954, October 27th of 1954 to be exact, and we won't, we're not going to talk as extensively about American history at this time for obvious reasons, but the one of the things that is pretty central to this movie is there's a lot of talk about nuclear weapons, and so I did do, I did just want to place us in our (laughs) nuclear weapon time period. And I didn't know the difference between an an atom bomb and a hydrogen bomb. We've talked, you've talked a little bit on the show before, Matt, about our horniest show, horniest movies we've watched. And we had the drunkest movie that we watched. And this is definitely the movie that is most likely to get me put on an FBI watch list because I spent a good amount of time Googling nuclear weapons. So 
Uh, it was just for the show, guys. I'm glad you did that research uh, and not me. So, Yeah, so July 16th, 1945 was the so-called Trinity, which is the first test of the atom bomb. That was the Oppenheimer project and all of that. And then I was pretty shocked at how quickly it progressed. I suppose this is American history and we probably should know it, but it, uh, August 6th and then August 9th, 1945. So just uh, under a month after that first test was the bombing of Hiroshima and then the bombing of Nisaki, Nagasaki. And I believe it's the bombing of Nagasaki that was mentioned Correct. in this movie. I think some, yeah, someone says that they, they barely escaped. And so those were atom bombs. And then seven years later in 1952, November 1st of 1952, was the first test of a hydrogen bomb, which was IV Mike. And the, so that was, the hydrogen bomb is a, I didn't spend enough time to fully understand all of the science, but it it's a dramatic improvement on the atom bomb in terms of, as I understand it, the stability of the nuclear weapon itself and also the size required to get the explosion that they get that <laughs> uh, is massively destructive for all people involved. So that was just two years before this movie came out. So this was obviously (laughs) Japan has a lot the the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were monstrously important events for them and then so they clearly were also tracking the H-bomb tests that were going on just a little under two years before yeah, in fact, um, there was another major nuclear test that happened in 1954. It's called Castle Bravo. And mm-hmm. so what this one was, was there was a series of hydrogen bombs that were tested. Uh, and this one was uh, fired off in the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. And the fallout of it ended up hitting a Japanese fishing vessel uh, called Daigo Fukuryu Maru, the Lucky Dragon Number 5. And many of them were mm-hmm. um, were contaminated by the fallout, and there were deaths among the crew and se- severe radiation sickness. And it's generally looked at as scholars generally look at that incident as being one of the inciting ideas and like moments behind this film. That it's uh, it, there's a lot of things that kind of refer to that directly. And so it, the, the film just clearly mm-hmm. is a commentary on the use of nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, specifically in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then these other tests afterwards with Ivy Mike and Castle Bravo. Yeah, and just to be clear, Castle Bravo, that's American Yes, testing, it was American yeah. testing that the fallout then hit the, this Japanese fishing vessel, and so all these fishermen were infected, or infected is not the right word, contaminated by the uh, fallout and suffered radiation sickness from the from this explosion this massive explosion yeah from the fallout yeah yeah it's not it's not really clear in the movie 
that it is not Japanese testing. And there's no reason that it should be clear. Anyone who was watching the movie at the time would have known exactly what was going on. But I actually assumed, and I think that's just my own ignorance of American history and the history of nuclear weapons, I assumed that it was self-referential at the time because I didn't, I hadn't placed the timing of Castle Bravo before I watched the movie. It's fascinating. Uh, everybody at the time period obviously would have been know, known that this was talking about American nuclear testing, as, as you mentioned. And there mm-hmm. was a lot of anti-nuclear weapon protests going on in Japan at the time period. A big anti-nuclear weapon uh, movement. Makes and sense. Uh, Godzilla is one of the... It shows up in a lot of movies from the time period, and Godzilla is kind of the premier movie mm-hmm. in which it shows up. Yep. That makes sense to me. Yeah, so so that's a lot of important historical context to understand this film. Yeah, and there were, outside of nuclear weapons, there were just a couple other things in that had happened in Japan this year that I wanted to, that I wanted to mention. I, the, ooh, hello, uh, Seven Samurai, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai was released in Japan this year. And Wikipedia only lists 13 Japanese films released this year. My assumption is that there were more, but that's the amount that made it onto uh, (laughs) Wikipedia. But I don't know enough about the history of Japanese filmmaking to know if, if there are a lot more that just never made it out of Japan or out of a... Uh, There probably were a bit more and like, I, I'm not an expert enough to, to know this exactly. So uh, my, this is me just kind of making an estimation. But I assume there were a bunch more, but I don't know that there were, like, hundreds more. But probably, yeah, you know, 50 to 100 more films somewhere in that range is probably reasonable to assume. Sure, makes sense. And then there were a couple of natural disasters that happened on September 26th. So they would not have informed the filmmaking of the movie obviously but i have to they seem pretty huge to me so i have to imagine they would be on people's minds when they're going to see this movie especially considering the opening so one of them was a typhoon in the sugaru strait which sank a ferry and killed 1100 people Um, and then wrecking seven other ships got got wrecked and then nine others were pretty badly damaged uh so that's the one that has the most direct impact on the movie at least psychologically i'd imagine but then there the same day there was also a huge fire in hokkaido oh it looks like it was because of this typhoon so that makes sense they were on the same day and that that killed 38 people and wounded another 551 people so the idea of your home getting destroyed or the loss of life at sea was was probably pretty forefront of forefront of people's minds. Yeah, it only makes sense, and it's a lot of the, you know, there's some discussion in the film about whether these deaths that are happening are the result of like nuclear warfare or if they're the result of natural causes like typhoons and things like that. So, and it they would have had to 
be be connecting this film with those events. Yep. And then you had a few U.S. events that you wanted to just mention to place us in the right time period, yeah? Yeah, a couple of U.S. events, just just to get in the mindset. One of them was in March of 1954. There was the, the classic See It Now program production about Joseph McCarthy by Edward R. Murrow, generally seen Ooh. as one of as the event that kind of deflated the Joseph McCarthy Red Scare was this uh, production put together by Edward R. Murrow where he went through and looked at all the facts behind Joseph McCarthy and his committees, uh, Senate committees that he or House committees that he was organizing. And so the Red Scare was a really big deal at the time period and this is kind of at the tail end of that. It still goes mm-hmm. on for a couple more years, but it's it's a pretty important thing. And then, you know, an important event with in May of 1954 was the Brown versus the Board of Education decision, which the decision was to um, remove segregation of schools in the United States. And, you know, it's a, the decision is a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the essential, essentially that decision did you have anything else you wanted to say about u.s history not from that time period the the only other thing that i wanted to mention is that the this film was released in japan and then there was a sort of remake slash re-release in 1956 a film called godzilla king of the monsters which was it took some of some of the original footage from this film and then filmed some other footage and recut it together and then (laughs) added some other like subtitles and translations and took out some of the major plot elements and added white people in as some of, for some of those plot elements and changed up those plot elements a little bit and that's generally when people think of uh, Godzilla the in the United States and the first Godzilla film that's generally what people think of so I think it's important to distinguish between the two that one is sort of a uh, sort of this movie but changed and i don't know it's it's kind of a weird thing and then a few months after that film released uh japan joined the united nations in december of 1956 and so people when they were going to watch godzilla king of the monsters it was the first major release of a japanese film in american uh, american cinema that was financially a success and so it kind of marks this time, this film's release and the time of Japan joining the United Nations, where you see a change in the international relationship between the United States and Japan that was very antagonistic up to that point and starts mm-hmm. to kind of change. And I think that this movie was actually a major part of it and other Japanese films that were essentially introduced in that year a lot of Kurosawa films came over in that year as well and so it's the year that American cinema kind of got introduced to Japanese cinema and that's 1956 just a yes 1956 two years after this film was released cool well while we're talking about its financial success in the U.S. I think that's a fine time to segue into our personnel and stats here so this movie in Japan had an 100 million yen budget so that translates to just a little under $870,000 and that's there's no and I haven't done any inflation adjustment or anything so 
and that's just using modern day yen to dollars uh, conversion rates. And the box office yielded 183 million yen, uh, or a little under 1.6 million dollars. So, pretty healthy. I, I'd have to imagine for the time a pretty healthy return on investment there. Yeah, that's a, that's a healthy return on inve- investment. The film was kind of panned by Japanese critics at the time. Um, oh yeah, and so, it's just a dumb monster film. A, a dumb monster film, but then you know it it made a pretty decent budget. It's comparable in budget and box office tr- return to other big U.S. films from the time period, like for example the film On the Waterfront. It's very similar box office numbers to that. Uh, though this was in Japan, which had a much smaller movie-going population. And so the percentage of people in Japan that would have seen this film is dramatically higher than the number, the percentage of people that would have seen On the Waterfront in the United States by comparison. Sure, makes sense. And then, ooh, I did want to talk quickly about, just give a quick rundown of the Godzilla franchise. So for of the non-american films so the japanese films there are 32 32 godzilla movies so (laughs) if you are inspired by the podcast and you want to go watch them all you've uh you've got more movies than the marvel cinematic universe to date so uh (laughs) and those are those are broken down into four different eras so there are 15 in the showa era and please interrupt me if I'm butchering any of these pronunciations. And that's from 1954 to 1975. And then there was a little break, and then it got rebooted for seven movies in the Heisei era, 84 to 95. Six in the uh, Millennium era. Easy to see where that name came from. That's 99 to 04. And then a 12-year break, and we're in the Raiwa era. Raiwa era. And there have been four since 2016 to the present. That is a lot of films, yeah. Uh, It is a lot. And then there are the four American films. Yes. And those films are mostly all... They're mostly all following the same canon. With some, like, soft reboots in the middle. Mm -hmm. So... It, but it's basically the same story. And the American, there was the American film that came in 1998, and then the American-made films that came later on in 2000, what was it, 2018, something like that. Uh, and those are also loosely within the same canonicity, within the same storytelling canon as the original Godzilla saga. But only loosely, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Maybe, uh, maybe in it'll take us like sixty to seventy years to cover cover all the different Godzilla films. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Who knows? Uh, so that's the Godzilla franchise. You had a few people that you wanted to talk about. So I want to talk a little bit about Ishiro Honda, who was the director of this film, and Ishiro Honda was a very important figure in in Japanese cinema at the time period. He 
over 60 years, he made 44 films, so a lot of films, and one of the most internationally successful filmmakers. One of the things that I found really interesting about Ishiro Honda is that he started out his filmmaking career, he did a little bit of like theater and things like that, and then he got brought in to do propaganda films during World <laughs> War II. And that is... Like, Japanese cinema had this uh, this kind of start in the 30s where it kind of was starting and not really getting rolling. And it wasn't until the propaganda era during World War II that the cinema really took off. And you saw the major actor or the major the major actors as well as the major directors in the the 50s Japanese cinema uh, kind of earned their stripes you could say in the during this propaganda era but one of the f- things that's fascinating is that these filmmakers were kind of drafted into it and most of the discussion of the these folks is that they were uh, hesitant to be involved with the kind of right-leaning politics at the time period and were kind of coerced into making the films that they were making but that's where the that's where Ashira Honda got a lot of his start and then started making films really started to get pros, more prosperous with Toho films afterwards in the 1950s. Cool. <laughs> Easy to see how you get from a propaganda film to something as directly political as this. I mean it's there everything has a very strong point of view, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And the it it's clear that they were trying to make political statements with the with this film. And that's part of what the 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 folks at the time period kind of panned about it is they felt like it was a little bit too, <laughs> too um, heavy-handed. <laughs> yeah, a little bit too heavy-handed with the with the politics and it wasn't until the film came over to the United States and was so popular and film critics in the United States loved this film and th- they loved the the messages, the the anti-nuclear messages that were in this film, specifically the Japanese version of Godzilla, even more, the critics really like that even more than Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And that's when this version, the Japanese version of the film, started to become more beloved by Japanese critics as compared to other versions of the story. Do you know the history of sort of anti-nuclear war sentiments in the U.S.? Like, would they have been broadly discussed at that time? I mean, I know now there's a lot of discussion over the pair of bombings and the various tests, but I don't know when that would have started. So I can't place all the major land landmark events for that, but I do know that major anti-nuclear um, movements and protests would have been happening at the time period. A lot of that was involved in the Red Scare. This is people mm. were building like their underground shelters and things like that. Um, right. My great grandfather built an underground sh- nuclear fallout shelter uh, in his backyard and during that time period in the fifties, uh, and I have been down into it and whatnot. So. Those kinds of things were going on at the time period. There were protests that happened, but I can't pinpoint the major landmark events that go that go along with that. I mean, knowing Americans and knowing that the internet didn't exist, like I have to imagine there wouldn't have necessarily been a ton of a ton of 
thinking about this from <laughs> a, the Japanese point of view. So I wouldn't be surprised if this movie would have had a big impact on being able to think empathetically about, you know, <laughs> other countries or other nations. But if, if anyone listening knows sort of the history of that evolution of thought in this country, de definitely let us know because I'm very interested now. Yeah, it's... it's... Uh, one thing that I do know from the cinema perspective is that the year before this film came out, there was a similar kind of film in the U.S., and I can't remember the name of it, but there's a monster that's under, like, the polar ice caps that, because of nuclear testing, escapes. Um, mm. And then the Americans destroy it with bigger nuclear weapons, thermonuclear, <laughs> like hydrogen bombs instead of atom bombs. And they're like, hooray, atom or hydrogen bombs. See, it's a good thing that we made them. So the cinema at the time period was like, yeah, I mean, nuclear weapons are great. They're, it's sad that we have to have them, but, you know, it's a good thing. So in contrast with Godzilla, which is making a clear moral argument that nuclear weapons and nuclear testing is is just a moral atrocity. I, th I think that's really interesting in comparison, and I think it probably spoke to a lot of people at the time period. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, who else did you have that you wanted to talk about? So the other person that I wanted to talk about, this is one of the actors that's on here. His name is Takashi Shimura, uh, and he plays Professor Yamane, or Dr. Yamane, in the film, and he is one of the most well-regarded and famous Japanese actors and he's this is one of the big films that he did but he was also in 21 out of 30 of Akira Kurosawa's films including oh, wow. all of the really big ones like like Rashomon and Akiru and Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood and The Hidden Fortress he was one of the lead actors in all of those films and he just showed up over and over and he, I recently watched the film Ikiru in which he, he is the actor, he's the star of the film, and it's quite a long film, and the film spends almost the entire time with him, and so when I sat down to watch this movie and I saw he was in it, I was like, oh my goodness, like, I, I've just watched a two and a half hour film that got so much into his psyche, it was really exciting to see him show up. And he's a fascinating person as well. He was also involved. So he was a, he was an actor before, like in the 30s. But his grandfather was a samurai, like a wow. like an actual samurai. Um, and so during the samurai era and all that, they exist. They're real. They're not just a mythology. Samurai existed. Um, samurai existed at the same time as Abraham Lincoln, actually. So. No, um, I don't believe that. That seems that seems like fiction. <laughs> so, um, so this the, his grandfather was a samurai, part of the samurai class, and then he became. So this uh, Takashi Shimura, he became an actor, and then he also got involved in in World War Two, and he was in films and doing those kinds of things, and he was. His brother was killed in the in World War II. One of the things that's really fascinating about him is that he was arrested during this time period because of his left-leaning views 
and his involvement <laughs> with left-leaning theater and actor groups. So he was arrested and spent a bunch of time in during World War II in prison because he was protesting against the right-wing government at the time period. And you can see that in a lot of his work that comes out afterwards, after the war, especially in films like, in the film Ikiru, you can see those, that kind of uh, philosophy in his film. He's an excellent actor, and it's, it's a pleasure to see him in this one, even though he doesn't get as much to act with in this film, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, it's not really his film, for sure. Yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, a lot of people's films. It is fascinating, though, with both of these people to see. So, in after um, the end of World War II, Japan went through... Uh, what happened is uh, there were U.S. troops that were in occupying Japan. Uh, and they rewrote their constitution um, and put in a new a new constitution in place. And that constitution is still in place. Uh, and one of the things that they did, one of the first things when the constitution put in place was they abolished censorship. So you weren't allowed to censor anything and you're supposed to have completely protected freedom of speech. And then immediately afterwards, they put into place General MacArthur as the supreme commander of the allied powers and gave him unlimited censorship powers over over any films that were and media that were produced at the time period so from like 1947 through about 1952 general macarthur was completely in control of basically all the films that were produced at the same at the time period and there was oh, heavy media <laughs> censorship and then it's not until 1952 that that ends and the japanese filmmakers are able to actually make their own films that they really are care about and are passionate about and then uh, the especially films that have like an anti-american message and it's not so much like an anti-american message as it is like an anti-american military message in this film uh, so this film couldn't have existed until that heavy censorship ended. Hmm. Uh, that seems like a pretty big deal to me. Yeah. So that's where that's where these these folks come out of is that kind of environment atmosphere that uh, you can see really impacts the film and the way the film is structured and put together. It it sheds a lot of insight onto uh, everything that happens in the film. The next person that I wanted to talk about was Akira Ifukubi, and that's the composer. And the reason I wanted to talk about him was because I was really struck by just how unbelievably strong the score to this movie was. Especially it's so the, good. It's really, it's, really good. It, it's so good. And especially the Godzilla theme, which plays over the opening credits and then plays basically every time he's rampaging through the city it's just it's a great theme and i kind of can't believe i've never heard it before do, do you know if they reuse it for future godzilla movies um i'm not sure if they reuse it for future godzilla movies yeah i don't know it's a it looks like I just went over here and looked at it. Yes, it's used over and over, and he uh, he continues making movies or making scores for Godzilla movies through the last one that he wrote music for was let's see um, in two thousand seven. So oh wow, 
yeah, the, it was a posthumous score. Um, but yeah, so he's he continued writing for Godzilla films all throughout that time period. Yeah, it's it's a really great theme, and it does like if you go and listen to it and sort of pay attention to the structure of it, it does a lot to keep you off balance. I think the I should have mapped it out beforehand, but the initial like string theme that's going on is it rotates around at sort of an uneven number of bars, which just sort of catches you off guard. And I think it does it maybe twice or one and a half times before it then modulates up and then it moves into sort of quarter notes or eighth notes, depending on how you're counting. But the beat is swung. So I think it's on like one and then seven and then two or something like that. So it's just really working very diligently to make sure that you're not comfortable in the in the score and i i think that's really really effective so akira he was inspired by tchaikovsky a lot which i did not know prior to the movie but i think that makes sense there was a lot of elements of petrushka in in this score i thought it sort of felt rhythmically vibrant to me in the same way and he had done a lot of classical work so he his first piece that he finished was in 1933 and that was on solo piano and then he would move into film scores in 1947 which is where he got famous and sort of did the majority of his work even though his passion had been for classical music and I think would remain for classical music for the majority of his life but he did do 250 film scores so this was his 34th still that would be in the middle of most film composers careers but still in the infancy of of his and incredible yeah Uh, Oh, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, I didn't key into this when I was watching the movie, but because I think normally you would expect it to be covered under sound effects, especially the way it's used in this movie, but he did um, Godzilla's roar as well as his footsteps. And the once you know to listen for it, you can hear it for the roar. So he took a leather glove and then covered it with rosin and then sort of rubbed it against loose uh, strings from a double bass, which is what <laughs> where that roar comes from. It totally fooled me. I did not recognize it as a musical instrument. I mean, I guess if you're going to call a rosin leather glove against a double bass a musical instrument. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and then the footsteps were made a little simpler just by striking an amplifier box, which, uh, I mean, those are huge parts of this film and it would be a lot different if, if he hadn't done that. So I thought that was pretty cool when I saw that. Yeah, that, that is really cool. And it's very creative use of use of the sound and the sound design in order to put that together. And the roar is iconic as well. Like it sounds, Mm -hmm. it holds up really well. Like, um, it's, it's, when I think of Godzilla, I do think of that roar because it plays over commercials, and I think that they still use 
that roar in a few places in the modern films because it's just it it just holds up still so good yeah that wouldn't surprise me at all and then the the only other quick thing that i wanted to mention just because i looked it up because i was curious the score sounds very western and so i was curious when the japanese music style sort of started shifting and the by the by so-called by musicality in japanese culture happened between 1870 and 1920 so that's when the western influences of classical music started creating this duality in the way japanese music evolved so i was curious about that and i thought maybe other people would be as well yeah it's it's useful information so how how did this film hit you? How did you find your your viewing? I really enjoyed watching this film. Um, mm-hmm. This was one of the ones that I went into. We'd picked it for the show, and I just kind of had in my mind that I was not going to enjoy it as much, but that I would be watching it for the you know historicity, the historical value of the film, and all of that kind of stuff. But actually, I really liked it. I enjoyed watching it a lot. It took me a little bit of time to get through it because uh, I had an ear infection and I couldn't put in headphones. Uh, so, um, so uh, listening to it, you know, while while the kids were asleep, usually I'll use headphones on my PlayStation while it's playing on the TV. And so I kind of took some time going getting through it before I actually sat down and watched it. But I enjoyed the film so much. I saw so many of these interesting interesting themes that stuck out to me and yeah it's it really hit me it surprised me how much i liked it yeah i had pretty much the exact same experience i was very pleasantly surprised by how deep and how political it was when i was really just expecting a non-pejorative dumb monster movie so that Mm -hmm. was pretty surprising to me I did have we're going to talk about it a little bit here but it does it did feel like the first act of the movie it was either set up in a clunky way or the sort of what was expected in Japanese filmmaking was just a little bit different cuz it so it was a little tricky for me to just grasp everything that was happening for about the first act of the movie but then once I was sort of able to figure out who the characters were and some of that was helped because I was taking notes and I could refer back to the character names then really the final two-thirds of the movie or the last two acts really just flew by and I was pretty invested in it and pretty curious how it was all going to turn out and like I did we didn't I watched it with my brother-in-law because he was the only one who was interested in watching it with me and we didn't end up watching the second one but we did immediately look up to see if the second one was on HBO Max because I was like yeah maybe I'll keep going with this this was fun that's cool. Yeah, that's great. I 100% agree with you on the the first act. And for me, it came down to three different issues. One of them, as you said, the structure is a little bit strange. There's not an identifiable protagonist. So it's hard to figure out who even the characters are until the um, until you have Professor Yamane or Dr. Yamane 
and Ogata and Amiko show up on that island, Odo Island, to investigate. But then I think that you were also right that uh, uh, Japanese films at the time period had kind of a different style and expectation, especially with the way that they kind of introduced the beginnings of films. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've seen that in some other Japanese films from the era that I've watched some Kurosawa films. But at the same time, the Kurosawa films seem to navigate that in a way that's a little bit stronger. The characters are a little bit uh, stronger. So uh, mm-hmm. th- so it's kind of both effects. And then on top of it, I was just listening really closely to the subtitles and they speak really quickly. And so you have a lot of subtitle reading at the beginning that's kind of dumping a lot of information. And so it was hard for me to figure out exactly what was going on for those first 15 or 20 minutes uh, while also trying to navigate those other two obstacles. Yeah. And I was pretty surprised about how it just plops you right in. Like that first attack happens... I think it's basically like the first scene of the movie and there's no, in an American movie, there would be some more attempt to sort of like set up. Some kind of prologue, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. If you think about like Jaws, you know, you get that scene of like everyone drinking and partying on the beach, you know. Uh, But no, this is just like the ship sinking (laughs) you would have had like an introduction of the main characters and like what their personal motivations are in that first you know 30 minutes and you only get that like very briefly for and one of the characters doesn't even show up until the middle of the second act uh and that's uh professor uh serizawa and he's like one of the most yeah he's one of the most important characters in the entire film um, and he just doesn't even show up in the first act. And so those kind of things make it difficult, especially for for us that are trained on Western media, to to key into what exactly is going on and what the, stor- the story is trying to tell us. Yeah, so that segues us pretty quickly into the first scene that I wanted to talk about, which, because they actually do introduce sort of our protagonists. I, I think, like... Ogata is sort of supposed to be the main protagonist in the movie. I agree, yeah. Um, and so you actually do meet him and Amiko pretty early. I think it's within the first like five to six minutes of the film. They So I wanted to talk about this scene where he gets the phone call from the Coast Guard and then he basically has to apologize to her and say that they're not going to get to go see uh, the Budapest String Quartet. Yeah, and yeah. that that's basic. That's the entire scene. Is he gets a phone it's, call? It's very short. Yeah, he apologizes to her and says that there was a shipwreck and he has to go to work. And I don't know about you, but when I first saw this scene, I think part of the reason I was so disoriented was. I assumed that he was apologizing to her because someone that she had known, someone that she knew had died on the ship. I thought he was supposed to be delivering that news to her. And so then you have to play catch up a little bit when he shows her the newspaper and it's the Budapest String Quartet. And he's like, you'll have to go without me. I have to go to work. And she's like, "Yeah, that's a bummer, but work is work. Yeah, so what I what I thought when I saw this, my what went through my head is I saw him and he like answered the phone and I was like, oh okay, he's the main character. 
And then she was there, and I, and what went through my head was, okay, this is going to be like a noir detective film where he's mm. going to have to investigate this and figure it out, and she's coming to like enlist his help, and then she'll be the inter- the love interest. But no, they were already dating, um, yep. and <laughs> you know they decide they're not going to to this thing, and he apologizes, and so that really threw me off. And then he doesn't show up again for like twenty minutes, right? Uh, in the no, film afterwards. yeah, it's and and you get a fair amount of other people who you see various also really short snippets of. And so I think there is something in this scene that makes it stand out because there is like a personal connection between them. And it's possible if you, it's possible like with a different sensibility, you would be able to clue into that. But at least for me, I spent, until he shows up again, as you said, I spent a good amount of time wondering, like, was that scene a mirage? Like, was that... It, yeah. W- what am I not not getting? I was like, where'd that guy go? Is he, is he just gone? Is he not showing up? And I was like, who's the main character? This is... It took me until um, until they, like, go to investigate. And you have... you have Honestly, it took until Takashi Shimura shows up. And I was like, oh, I recognize him. He's a famous actor. Mm, yeah. He's <laughs> Now I know who the main characters are. And so that takes about 20 minutes into into the show. But then Ogata, the, this guy that was shown at the beginning, turns out to be kind of one of the primary uh, protagonists of the film as the film goes on later on. It's just structurally it's difficult for us to identify it at the at this. Like, it feels like he's supposed to be from this first moment. And then the structure of the next 15 or 20 minutes makes it difficult to, to connect that as easily. Yeah, but you know what the biggest clue in this scene is that they're going to, that he's going to be the protagonist or they're going to both serve some protagonist functions is they're both extremely good looking. Extremely good looking, yes. This is true. And yeah. he's wearing the wife beater and she's wearing the nice the nice dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there is <laughs> there is that visual clue of we should care about these very attractive people. Yes, that guy is hot. He's probably a main character. So mm-hmm. um, especially the way that he's like holding the phone. Um, and it's, I don't know, there was something very, like, um, a lot of, like, sexual tension even in that scene. Uh, yeah, this is why I thought it was, like, a... very modern about it. I agree, yeah. it's And it's why I thought it was, he was, like, this, gonna go on this kind of noir detective kind of story. Because it feels like every noir detective story where the guy's, like, there, gets the phone call and meets the girl and then goes to investigate. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you wanted to say about this scene? Or should we move on? We can move on. Yeah. Okay, cool. The The next scene that I wanted to talk about is, it's a scene, the scene where, it's actually two scenes that I want to talk about. One is a little earlier in the movie, and then we'll jump a little bit later, because they're connected. And it's the scene where Amiko goes to meet Sarazawa. Um, and she goes with the reporter under the pretense of the reporter getting to ask Sarazawa some questions. And so there, there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about here. One, the first thing I wanted to ask you is there was some strange dialogue where I think there was an implication that... Amiko and Sarazawa used to be a couple because she she mentioned something to Ogata that she hasn't told him. And I think she hasn't told him that like 
they're together or they're planning to be engaged. Was that something you picked up on or did I miss something more explicit than that? So it's it Japanese audiences at the time period would have picked up on this more than Mm. we did. I had to go and research it and I could tell something was there, but I wasn't sure exactly what. What it is, is that they have and they are set up for an arranged marriage. So they're they're supposed to get married to each other. Uh, She's his fiance, like their fiance's. But Amika and Sarazawa. Yeah, Amiko and Sarazawa. And her dad has arranged for her to marry him through um it's a uh it's a uh tradition called Omiai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that, but it's a it is an arranged marriage where your parents will, will set up this marriage between you. But the cultural context of this is that these arranged marriages were very popular and traditional up to the time of world war ii and then when general macarthur came into play and they changed the constitution of japan one of the things that they added in was an equal protection clause for um uh an equal rights clause for gender um Mm -hmm. which i find really fascinating because there's still not an equal rights amendment in the united states but this was added (laughs) into the japanese constitution at the time period and so because of this, there was also a dramatic drop-off on these arranged marriages in the time afterwards. By the time this film came out, only about 8 to 10% of people would get married in these arranged marriages. And in the structure of this film, it's actually also serving a symbolic purpose of this, that Emiko and Ogata are kind of looking into the future and past mm. their traditions and kind of adopting more of these American traditions. And, or American traditions isn't, isn't even the right word, modern Japanese traditions and the way that their culture was moving forward. Uh, whereas her father and to some extent Serozawa represent these kind of past traditions. And there's a conflict between them. I didn't pick up this as I was watching the film, but as I was listening to, uh, there's a scholar, I can't remember his name, but he does a a YouTube video, a lecture about the series that I watched, and it touches on that. And so we'll link that in the show notes. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) That is very good, very good context to have. I actually didn't pick up on any on any tension between Amiko and Sarazawa. So I don't know if on a rewatch with that information if I would be able to pick up on that a little better. I was sort of I assumed there was some sort of love triangle going on, but I was pretty impressed that they seemed to deal with it in a pretty mature way. Like the three characters did, not the film did. Yeah, I agree. It's a and it feels very it feels very modern kind of actually that it even better modern isn't even the right word it feels very egalitarian because uh she's you know she apparently has had feelings for him at some point but not as strong Mm -hmm. as she has for ogata she's kind of letting him down gently and he just kind of uh accepts her her perspective and there's not a lot of tension between them like it's not fighting over this love triangle and i really enjoyed that yeah yeah, yeah, me too. So the next part of this scene is she go he he being Sarazawa after the reporter leaves is like, "Hey, do you want to do you want to see what I've been working on? I'm going to show you, but it's just for you, so you have to promise not to tell anyone. No seriously. 
you can't tell anyone. And then he takes her down into his laboratory. And there were, I thought these were a bunch of really cool shots and sort of panning and expansive shots of his laboratory where you get to sort of see the fishies that are there. I think there's a couple tanks with fish in them and you get a close up on one of them and then it pans around and you see the entire laboratory and it really, you know, the, you knew he was sort of this fulfilling this mad scientist character because he had the eye patch on or my brother-in-law referred to him as eye patch guy when he showed up for the first time with the sunglasses on, which as an aside was a very good way to make sure that we knew, especially for an AFANT like me, knew who he was. Because when he showed back up again, oh, hey, it's the, the guy with the eye patch. We know that guy. Well, and his eye patch is also supposed to represent injuries that he sustained in World War Two. Oh, not... Was that mentioned later in the movie? Uh, no, this is, again, I'm taking context from this scholar that talks about the kinds of things that if you were a Japanese viewer at the time period, you would have picked up on that mm. I did not pick up on, just to be clear. so Yeah, I would have. I, I just assumed it was a, a science accident gone wrong. Yeah, so, and, so, but that's kind of the idea as well, is that he's gotten into science and he was involved in the war so he's this uh complex moral character in in this and he's he represents kind of the science that's that japan is doing kind of in response to the american science with the nuclear testing and all those kinds of things but Mm -hmm. what i what i this scene confused me because she sees something in there and then she runs away or I don't, I don't know if run, but she's like frightened by what she sees, but you don't see it at the time period. Uh, and yeah, so I was like, wait, so, what happened there? I don't know. Like, okay. Yeah. So there's actually a, a bit of a directorial, I don't know, it, maybe a sleight of hand, but it's also a little cheeky. It's a like, it's a little disingenuous, you might say. Um, yeah. Some misdirection. Yeah. yeah. So you she he drops the pellet in and then she screams and then it cuts to them walking out of the laboratory and him saying right you can't tell anyone about this. And then later we get I I think it's intentionally cut in that way so that you're not really supposed to think that there's anything more of substance that happens in between when the camera cuts after she screams to them walking out of the laboratory. But then later in the movie, when she's retelling the story to Ogata, we get let in on the idea that there actually was more dialogue here where um, she, she sees the, the tank filled with smoke or bubbles or I guess it's not smoke filled with bubbles and then just fish carcasses all all over the place and that I was expecting but I was not expecting us to get a full explanation of the oxygen bomb as it turns out to be at that time and when I watched the movie I was pretty impressed by this misdirection i really liked it 
I didn't really have time to think about the uh, underhandedness of the deception from the first scene. <laughs> and so it wasn't really until I went back and rewatched for the for the podcast that I was like, oh, they they really kind of pulled one over on us. But I don't yeah. know that I can really if it didn't affect me in my initial viewing, I think that's kind of successful. I think that kind of did it well. Yeah. And I don't know. It, what what do you think? It's hard to decide whether it's a cheat or whether it's just, you know, sometimes you have this in films where you use a little bit of elision, something happens off screen, and the character is kind of blocking it from their memory. Like, Emiko doesn't want people to know so kind of why would she want the camera to know why would she be like thinking about it in her memory constantly so if we're viewing the camera as being like her remembering the events uh, mm -hmm. it makes sense that she would kind of block it out and be trying not to think of it until she comes back to it at the same time i generally prefer when directors give you information and then allow you to come to an understanding of how it all fits together as the story goes Right. Um, I don't know. It, it's a, it's tricky with this one. So th the editing is a little bit, I don't know the, I, I liked it in the film as well when it went back to it. So I don't know that I can call it a criticism, but I wonder if in modern filmmaking, I suspect that you would do this in a different way. And I don't know sense. if it would yeah. be more or less enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I liked it fine, and I, I like you saying that it was a cheat, so it wasn't until I was thinking about it afterwards um, that the idea of it being a cheat really, really started to maybe think about irking me. And, you know, people rewatched movies a lot less back then, so I think that's probably fine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's fine. It's a, well, it's funny at the time period. A quick aside is that uh, the movie going habits at the time period where you just went to the movies every week, but you just saw different movies. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's, you wouldn't have expected to go back and watch this over and over and over again. Um, you probably wouldn't have even thought about this scene until you watched it like 30 years later when it came out on VHS or something. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about this, this scene and the, the flashback? No, I don't. The next scene kind of segues easily, though, because it happens in between these things and kind of connects to it. Um, yeah. So the next thing that I want to talk about was there's this scene where Godzilla has been doing like these, these like nightly attacks and uh, is mini rampages. Yeah. Yeah, mini rampages. Yeah, we might say. Um, and so people are getting really worried about it professor yamane has been like investigating what's going on and finds like the trilobite and they know there's this monster that they have to deal with and so they you've seen godzilla at this point and you know i a quick aside again i actually found that godzilla i found it kind of held up well the the special effects with it i don't know how how you felt about it but i found it kind of held up well for um, with the practical effects it's a guy in a costume and you know it's a guy in a costume but i didn't mind that i don't know if that makes sense i'd say it was about yeah i didn't mind i didn't mind it i'd say it was about 50 50 mm -hmm. um the his first the first sighting of godzilla 
where it's just his head. I thought that was a bit goofy. Yes. Um, that didn't look particularly, like, scary to me. But a lot of the, like, full body stuff I thought was, uh, yeah, it did hold up pretty well. Yeah. So you start to get a sense as the news reporters are saying, oh, Godzilla is attacking of how bad these attacks are. And then you have this dinner scene where you have Emiko and Ogata are meeting before this dinner. And they're discussing, and this scene is not particularly long. No, it's pretty short, too. <laughs> it's pretty short, yeah. So they're meeting, and they're like, he says, hey, I'm going to ask my or ask your dad if I can marry you. And I didn't, you know, I knew they were kind of dating before, but I didn't realize, like, what was going on with this until this scene. And you realize all of a sudden, oh, like, whew, they're really serious. Uh, and then they sit down to have dinner with, with Dr. Yamane, her father. And Miko turns out to be the daughter of this scientist that's been investigating Godzilla. And then we you have this interesting discussion about whether or not to try to destroy Godzilla. And mm-hmm. Dr. Yamane has been making an argument that because Godzilla appears to be immune to nuclear weapons that it would be useful to study Godzilla and as a living thing to honor his life and not destroy him because there could be benefits from this creature and I really enjoyed that discussion that they were having and then Ogata makes the other argument that he's so destructive that you have to destroy the creature because it's destroying too much of human life and I really enjoyed the discussion between these two things and I found myself, I was siding with Dr. Yamane here, but um, I I was kind of torn with, like, how do I justify this? Because I see the justification from the other side. The important part here, though, is that they then get into a massive fight. He tells him, no, you can't destroy it. And Dr. Yamane kicks him out of the house, and he can't isn't able to propose. And so that's kind of the end of that scene. He's like, well, I was going to propose, or I was going to ask if I could marry your daughter, but, you know, you kicked me out of the house and said I could never come back. So I guess that's not going to work out. Well, that that actually isn't the end of the scene, because then after Yamane, Dr. Yamane leaves, there's an additional exchange between Amiko and Ogata that I, right. that I really liked, where they apologize to each other. Ogata's basically, she's like, sorry that went that way and he says oh no i'm sorry i wasn't very tactful and then Mm -hmm. she apologizes again for her father like i he's just in a really bad mood because of whatever i don't remember exactly what she says but i thought that was a really nice moment of both of them i mean she's taking ownership of her dad which she shouldn't do but i think like Certainly, I expected them to sort of, like, in an American trope, to get mad at each other and <laughs> why did you have to be so obstinate and why can't your dad understand? And But no, instead they were really loving and kind to each other, which I really liked. Yeah, it's a, it's, it, was, it was a tender scene and I think it worked out well. And it also sets up the, the end in which Emiko is going to reveal to Ogata that there is a way to destroy Godzilla. And so this arc of story, like once all this was happening, I was really invested in these characters and the human conflict that was involved in this bigger, like human versus monster conflict and how these things were connecting to each other. And I really enjoyed that part here. Yeah, I 
I think I was, because I sort of know that so many of the upcoming movies are like monster versus monster, Godzilla versus whatever, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, or King Kong, or what have you. Yeah, I was really not expecting this from this movie. Uh, I agree, I agree. And And I guess I'm curious to see if it holds in future versions or if it sort of just devolves into monster v monster yeah what i've read is that it it turns into like basically professional professional wrestlers in monster suits uh in the later movies and so it's just like monster versus monster whoever godzilla is fighting and some of the stories become very nationalistic later on and Mm. all those kinds of things so critics generally don't hold them in very high regard but in this one the 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 tensions and the conflicts are subtle and they're complex and not only that i think they kind of complement each other really well because you have this conflict over whether they should destroy the monster or not between professor yamane and ogata and then you also have this kind of uh, generational conflict between Professor Yamane and his daughter. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so these tensions are playing against each other. And they're also reflected in the conflict with Godzilla and the representation of American nuclear warfare. And whether that's like this destructive thing and how to respond to it or whether... Godzilla represents the nation being able to respond to the nuclear welfare, whether it's a a destroyer or a thing of hope. And I think it also represents this idea of, like, how should we respond to the cultural impacts that are happening in our society? And are those a good thing or are those a bad thing? And how do we figure out and navigate those those elements? And so I love the the synchronicity, the, the... the way they complement each other, these two, uh, these three major conflicts. Yeah, and I think I was sort of like you, I was feeling a lot of sympathy for Dr. Yamane's position here. A lot of it was certainly making me think a lot. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that, thinking about that point of view during the next scene that we're going to talk about the rampage. So this one was yours. So why don't you go ahead and talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So this is the scene where Godzilla comes and attacks Tokyo. And so he's attacking Tokyo. He is, um, I love the way they built and put together this scene. And so from a cinematography standpoint, what you have is you have an actor that is wearing a big lizard costume that is moving around, and then you have the city that's put together as miniatures. So little miniature buildings and telephone poles and all of those things. And Godzilla is going around, knocking buildings over, tearing down uh, telephone poles, and then blowing this radiation all over the place. It, the, and But it's intercut with scenes that are very melodramatic and kind of terrifying that show people and the effects that these attacks are having on those people so when i was watching this and seeing and they were cutting between the monster that's in the suit with the miniatures and i knew they were miniatures but i was like oh they did a pretty good job making these look kind of realistic and look at the things he's doing but then it was cutting to like a mother holding her child as as the buildings are burning around them i found it not just holding her child saying we're gonna go join daddy we'll be with daddy soon i wrote that quote down it was 
it was horrible. It was yeah. horrible. But in a way that the thought that I had as I was watching this scene, I went. I thought back to The Shining and how I'd been like, mm, I didn't find The Shining very, very scary. And I was like, this movie I find a lot more terrifying than The Shining. Because this idea of the of it's very reminiscent of the way the way that the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki affected people at the time period and all kinds of other horrible acts of war and the impacts that they have on people. And you're seeing these images that I think are directly meant to reflect those experiences and connect with those things. So I found it very kind of moving and powerful the way that this was put together. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, like, I get Dr. Yamane's point. They got to like there's value in this creature but at the same time this is just killing so many people and how can you let this keep going and so i found this scene really compelling and i enjoyed it a lot yeah not just killing a lot of people i mean the like the whole town gets leveled basically like the because of the the whole city it's tokyo it's the biggest city in the country yeah it's it's a lot and you see how big it gets because you see like all the different radios and people being like it's coming here Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) it's not just on this uh this little what's the island called oto uh odo yeah odo yeah odo which i don't know if you looked it up but is a odo odo yes um but it's a fake island created for for the movie i wasn't sure i didn't look that up but i just assumed well, they do reference a volcano eruption at the beginning of the movie, and that one is real. Yeah, it's a, it's it, it was hard for me to tell what places were like real and what places were not, but when they were talking about the island of Odo and the the traditions they had of like worshipping Godzilla and sacrificing like children to Godzilla to I don't know if they specific, yes. yeah. I was like, mm, that's probably not a real place." So uh, I don't think it's a child. I think it's uh, specific. It was specifically a young teenage teenage woman. So specifically like a virgin woman, right? So, yeah. Okay. It was pretty interesting that they wrapped into that mythology, the end of the mythology as well. That like, because they, they tell the story about it, but they also tell like the end of it. <laughs> yeah that that they switched to just a is it just a song or just a chant i don't fully remember i don't remember very well either but yeah that was cool they also had a funny moment where they talk about godzilla as the monster of the century and i was like uh how many other monsters are competing with this how many monsters do you do you all have (laughs) yeah that is great like uh yeah, it was interesting, and I was like, mm, are they just trying to set up that there's going to be so many sequels here that are going to have different monsters, or are they trying to establish that this world has all kinds of giant monsters that have been attacking? Yeah, I don't know. I found that one really interesting. And I wondered as well if maybe that was a a translation issue, that it says Monster of the Century, Ooh, but yeah. that in an English translation it might have come across differently. I didn't look this up, though, or anything, so, so I don't know. Catastrophe, or, yeah. Yeah, something closer to, like, yeah, the catastrophe of the century or disaster or tragedy or something like that. Right. 
I really liked in the Rampage, there was the one shot of him, of Godzilla picking up the bridge. And the it was, because I knew it was a guy in the suit, I was like, and it happened so quickly. I was like, man, they, like, they had to make a bridge that was bigger than this person, but still that he was able to lift up and break in half. Yeah, it's like that doesn't. I like I'm, like I'm sure you can do it with foam, and it's not really that difficult if if it's your job. But it it did like it did take me aback in the moment. I was like, oh, that's cool. Well, and it couldn't have been easy to like see and act in that suit. You know, you're like trying to pick up that bridge and like carry it around, and how can you even see out of the snout of that thing? Um, (laughs) I don't know. I found the performance actually pretty good of Godzilla in this. In this part, I found it compelling. It didn't take me out. I was very much in, in this scene. Yeah, man, Godzilla was robbed, robbed of his Oscar. Yeah, for sure. Would have been great. I, uh, it was the same year as what was it on the waterfront came out that year. So you know, that's a difficult challenger. Um, but it could have been a contender. Justice for Godzilla. Do Do you have any sense of how they did the, the shots with like the um what was supposed to be like metal framing melting i don't know i don't know because um, that that was pretty surprising to me yeah i wondered i wondered about that but the special effects obviously they're kind of uh they seem kind of primitive compared to now but compared to the things that were at the time period i think it holds up pretty well but i'm not sure how they did that i i assume that they filmed like scenes like with the metal there and then without the metal there and then kind of edit it so it looked like it was melting in there but i don't know they probably took some metal and heated it up so it was kind of flowing i don't know i'm not sure how they put that together and i didn't look it up so do you have anything else you want to say about the final rampage or should we move into cleanup let's move into cleanup cool i'll go first the first thing that i wanted to talk about was i was pretty surprised by sort of the progression, how quick the progression of Godzilla happened in this movie. This is not what you would expect from sort of a modern monster movie. So the the first time Godzilla is name-checked is 11 minutes in, and then it's at 22 minutes and 30 seconds when you finally see, or finally, it's only 22 minutes, when you first see Godzilla's head over the mountains. And then it's 30 minutes when the ships go and fight Godzilla. 46 minutes, so about halfway through the movie, you get your first full body shot of Godzilla. And then 57 minutes in when you first see him breathe radioactive fire. I'm glad that you went through and got the timestamps for all of those because uh, it really helps break down how it goes. And like you said, that is not how a modern monster movie or even how the modern Godzilla movies do this they the you have this kind of way that modern films are made in which you you really just dribble out the information about the monster as slowly as possible and in a modern movie you probably wouldn't see like a full godzilla until the climax of the film yeah yeah there's sort of a sense that like as soon as you show the full monster then the the movie's over and a lot of that is from this idea that like the monster that your brain imagines is 
going to be a lot worse than anything you can show on screen. And so as soon as you show it, then it's it's sort of all over from there. Yeah, and which makes sense. But I think it actually plays in favor in this movie. I think that it was a smart decision. And I think the decision holds up well because the major conflict of this film is not supposed to be how terrible a monster Godzilla is, but how terrible of monsters human beings can be and what decision mm-hmm. do you make in this one. And so you have that conflict basically happening in this where you've seen the monster and you're able to think about this monster in more concrete terms. And I think it makes this discussion about the moral argument of what to do with the monster so much more meaningful and evocative because you've been able to see this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What else do you have for cleanup? So, you know, the ending of this film where Dr. Serizawa, he has this oxygen destroyer and he decides he's going to use it but destroy all of his notes and then go destroy Godzilla. Um, Mm -hmm. I really liked the ending, the way that it was put together. I liked the idea that was put here that um, Dr. Serizawa is... He recognizes the danger of the scientific discovery that he has achieved and is unwilling to put this in the hands of people that would use it for for whatever bad reasons they might be and it's you know it's an obvious political message of this idea that the nuclear testing that was going on is should be ended and that having those things get out to people uh, is only going to lead to it being used in terrible ways and I liked that message there at the end of the film. I was very sad, though, that he had to sacrifice himself in order to to get that message across. Well, he had to sacrifice himself because the work lived on in his head. Yeah. He doesn't sacrifice himself to kill Godzilla. He could do that without it. He sacrificed himself to, to prevent his own... His own invention from destroying other people from to prevent becoming an even worse monster than Godzilla. I found I found that really uh poignant. Yeah, 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 I did. I did as well. The the only other thing that I had for cleanup is you do have these underwater shots at the end of the movie, which I was a little interested in, and so I did just a little bit of looking, and it looks like what is widely considered to be the first like film with sequences shot underwater was a 1956 French documentary. Um, So my assumption is, is that Godzilla doesn't count because I, I think you can sort of tell, but I think they were in tanks and then the cameras were all outside of water. I think, yeah, it seems was... like they have. It seems like it's tanks, and then they have miniatures inside the tanks in order to shoot it. Oh, were they were they all miniatures? It, that's what that's what it seemed to I me as I was watching. I don't know for on sure. Faces, but maybe not. Oh, cl- you're talking about the parts that are close-ups on the faces. I was thinking of the part where yeah. Godzilla's bones are like disintegrated, disintegrated under the water. So that to me seemed like it was tanks with uh, miniatures of the bones that were put yep. in there. Um, the yep. scenes with the Serizawa that's underwater, I don't remember them well enough to, to conjure them in my head to, to try and figure out what was going on with them. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was paying attention because I was surprised we were going to get an underwater sequence. 
and I think they had them submerged in tanks, but maybe someone knows. So let, let us know if, if you do. That'd be great. Yeah. That's the last thing I have for, for cleanup. Do, do you have anything else? I don't have anything else. All right. So then let's move into shutting this bad boy down. The, this was our seventh episode. So after this, we are going to be going forward to 1993 to watch another dinosaur movie. We're going to watch Jurassic Park. And then that'll, that'll close us out for, for HBO Max. And yeah. we'll, we'll announce next week sort of what our future, future plans are and all of that. As always, if you want to provide us with any feedback, if you want to give us a line, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A, and you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah, and that's a good place to just give us a shout, to say you're listening to the show, or uh, say what have you. If you want to shoot us some longer-form thoughts, you can send us an email at podcast stream it at gmail.com and that will be in the show notes and of course as always i do want to say thank you to friend of the show and our beta listener and editor david stewart so thanks so much for all of your help making us sound just a little bit better than we normally would and did i get everything i think i got everything i think that's everything all right. Do you have a closing question this week? I forgot I to ask you before we started recording. Okay. Why don't yeah. you go first? It's it's pretty obvious one, so I'm nervous if you have okay. it, but we'll go for it anyway. I don't think I do. Um, if you could, like, have a movie about some kind of kaiju, a giant uh, animal, what kind of animal would you want to see? Like, what would be what would be the kaiju you'd want? And it's just a giant animal? A giant animal. So this one has a giant, like, lizard dinosaur creature. Yeah. Uh, what kind of animal are you wanting to see a giant monster movie? Oh, I mean, it obviously would have to be the greatest animal of all time, a polar bear. <laughs> I knew you were going to answer that, so it's... Uh, yeah, so uh, that's probably your answer too, right? Since it's uh, the best animal. So I had to really think about this one because I was like, what I want... Would I want there to be a giant spider? And I thought, no, that's too obvious and probably has been mm. made. Um, I thought about, like, a giant octopus, and I looked that up, and yes, that one has been made and has fought Godzilla, a giant octopus creature. Oh, yeah. So, so I was thinking and trying to come up with something, and I settled on. Um, I want to see, even if this was a Godzilla versus movie, uh, a giant kangaroo. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, and so you can imagine it, like, jumping around or, like, swinging its tail. And I don't know, it would make kind of an interesting little suit and all that stuff. Uh, so that's the one that I'd go for. Yeah, someone could get stuck in the pouch. Yeah, yeah. Maybe have some people, like, riding in the pouch as they're, like, uh, I don't know. Maybe the the kangaroo has taken them hostage and Godzilla has yeah. to fight them and rescue them or whatever it might be. Oh, that's pretty good. So my que- my question for you there's kind of a strange moment in this movie where he, uh, Sarazawa burns all of his research and Amiko just like absolutely wails as if her like soul is being destroyed because this research is disappearing. And 
My question to you is what is a discovery that would make you howl with anguish if you witnessed its burning, knowing that it would be vanquished from existence and no one else would get to know it? It's a really good question. I'm going to have to think about that one for a minute. Let's see. It doesn't have to be like a scientific discovery. Yeah, I, can I, I have an idea though, so I figured it out. So the thing that would just, that would tear me apart so much and I think goes along with this well is it's a kind of technology that if it were invented, I could see how it could be put to terrible use so easily and might have to be destroyed. But there's also so many good things and that would be the ability to teleport people around. Um mm. And, you know, it's really easy to imagine the way that this might get used to just turn into a massive, horribly bloody uh, conflict where so many people die so easily and so quickly. But also, you know, uh, not having people get in car accidents and being able to get things to places quickly and easily would be so wonderful. And so it would, I would have that tension of feelings like maybe we have to destroy this information, but also imagine all the good that could be done with it. And it would rip me in two just to, to see that being destroyed. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a, that's a lot better. That answer is a lot more in spirit with the movie than my answer, uh, which is the original and at the point in time when it would be burned for this uh, hypothetical manuscript for Move On from Sunday in the Park with George, a song that I feel like captures sort of the artist's struggle. And I just can't imagine if, like, I was the only person who got to hear that in the world and then no one else got to. I, I am would... in physical pain imagining this at the at this moment. Yeah, Oof, that'd be terrible. It seems absolutely horrific. It does. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so with that happy thought, thanks for hanging out with us and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.